I next met with Dr. Norman Walmark, chair of the NSABP, and to begin, he commented on an issue of some debate, the timing of sentinel node biopsy in patients receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I think sentinel nodes are reasonable as a replacement for axillary dissection. And we have data to support that from the NSABP, Terry Mamanus case in point. And there's some surgeons who like to do the sentinel node prior to the chemotherapy. I'm sure they have a good rationale for doing so. I'm not entirely certain what that is, but we prefer for the standard neoadjuvant trials to do the sentinel node or axillary sampling or axillary dissection after the chemotherapy is given to determine if one has a PCR in the breast and axilla or one does not. I guess the sort of intuitive question there is the patient who theoretically starts out with a positive sentinel node that becomes negative with treatment. What do we know in terms of that situation in terms of predicting negative axilla and predicting axillary recurrence? We don't know, nobody's done the study, but we are about to embark on a study where the alleged positive node is sampled by core fine needle aspiration cytology and left in situ. Then the patient goes through the neoadjuvant therapy, and then we will determine post hoc after the neoadjuvant therapy if that patient converted from a positive node to a negative node. And if they did, do they require adjuvant radiotherapy, or regional radiotherapy? So the question is, in a patient who converts from positive to negative, do they have additional benefit by adding regional radiotherapy? And that trial will open. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, it kind of surprised me when I saw it because I kind of had forgotten about it, was a paper that was presented at San Antonio that the NSABP was involved with, a so-called Calor study. Can you talk about that? That one just kind of jumped out all of a sudden. Yeah, it did. It did, didn't it? Yeah. The Keller study, and I don't know what the acronym stands for. I'm sure it's something very interesting, was a simple study that asked a very basic question. For local regional recurrence, should you treat if you are able to resect that recurrence with and without radiotherapy so that the patient is disease-free? Is there anything salutary about adding chemotherapy? And it was an international trial. It was a big trial. And then the NSABP joined the trial because we thought it was a very useful question to ask, either in-breast recurrence, local regional recurrence, a case in point, do these patients benefit by giving them additional chemotherapy and after all, they're resected? You all had shown a long time ago that the prognosis of somebody with local recurrence is somewhat adverse. Is higher, is higher. But if you look at, for example, we showed that in BO6, where the non-irradiated group lumpectomy with radiation, lumpectomy without radiation, modified radical mastectomy. So although there was no difference in outcome for the mastectomy without radiation versus for the lumpectomy without radiation versus mastectomy, lumpectomy with radiation versus mastectomy, 
that those individuals who had an in-breast recurrence, and it was much higher in the non-irradiated group, if you look at the cumulative IBTR, it's over 40% in the non-irradiated group and is below 20% in the irradiated group. And those individuals who had an IBTR had a poor outcome. But the comparison of the two groups, the irradiated and non-irradiated groups, was not significantly different. So we were masking the ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence, which in turn is a surrogate for a poor outcome. So getting back to the Kellar trial, that even with under 200 patients randomized into this trial, those patients who received chemotherapy did far better than those patients who did not. So you can say, well, were they ER positives or ER negatives? And it appeared to be restricted to the ER negative cohort. Of course, the ER positives all were treated with some kind of hormonally targeted therapy. But nonetheless, this was a very surprising outcome because the sample size was so small, we did not meet the pre-specified sample size. And despite that, there were highly statistically significant differences in those individuals who received postoperative chemotherapy for local regional recurrences compared to those who did not. So do you think this is kind of an imprimatur to now look at these patients, including the patients who have local recurrence in the breast after lumpectomy, kind of like starting out all over again with adjuvant therapy? I mean, do we give them trastuzumab? Do we give them hormone therapy? Obviously, chemotherapy is right out there, too. I think we really have to reassess our algorithm. And we really have to reassess the biologic behavior of those patients who have a local regional recurrence. Now, we know with the Oncotype DX, for example, that local regional recurrence is strongly associated with Oncotype risk. So I don't think that these observations are in any way disparate. Quite the contrary. I think they're congruent. So if a patient develops an in-breast tumor recurrence and they benefit by giving the chemotherapy or another course of chemotherapy uh, post-resection of a local regional event, I think that should stimulate a lot of thought as to the biologic behavior. And to your point, should we now consider reinitiating chemotherapy? Are we treating a chronic kind of disease that will benefit by multiple courses of chemotherapy before there's distant disease? I think we really need to explore that, and I think you may very well be right. I guess the other thing, if you want to carry that analogy further, is, you know, and I don't know if we'll ever get any data on this, but do we think about using an archetype on a local recurrence? I always do. Is that right? Yes, on a local I, recurrence? I do. Huh. Makes sense. I actually. get a phone call from time to time saying this isn't breast. I said, yes, but it's breast cancer. Hmm. Interesting. It makes sense. I do, because I think for the high-risk ER positives, you can make a case for utilizing additional intervention as well. You know, thinking about the surgeon listening to this, having kind of seen the history of this evolve and 
course, the NSABP being completely in the middle of it in terms of, for example, Oncotype. I'm curious, you know, looking back over the last 10 years, because I think it's been about 10 years since you guys first started presenting the Oncotype data. You know, now that you take a step back from that, from a macro perspective, what are some of the lessons you've learned, both in terms of practical lessons, in terms of where you use genomic assays, which one, and where you see things moving in the future? The first data that we reported, I think, was December of 2003. Right. Ironically, in 2001, where there was the published report of the consensus panel recommendation, which actually took place in 2000, their recommendation was that for tumors that were greater than one centimeter in size, all patients should be treated with adjuvant chemotherapy. No negative. No negative. Precisely. This was a consensus statement right. for no negative patients. Right. I'm glad you emphasized that. We contributed a great deal to that consensus statement because it was our data that was really driving their recommendations. It was B20, case in point. It was B13, another case in point. And that came out of the fact that we could not identify a subset based on tumor size, based on the ligand binding assay that did not benefit by the addition of CMF-based chemotherapy or MTF-based chemotherapy postoperatively because the hazard ratio was similar. Now, we knew at that time that there had to be patients who did not benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. And that was one of the motivations for us to seek a partnership with a biotech company that could develop a genetic or molecular algorithm that would be associated with prognosis and perhaps, and hopefully, would be associated with predictive value to determine who does or does not benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. I was actually reminiscing with Pat Borgen this morning about that time, you know, after 2001, 2002, where I feel like oncologists, quote, sort of had a bad name with surgeons. You know, we were giving chemo to everybody and we couldn't figure out who to give it to. And I think there was a lot of skepticism in the surgical com community at that point. Right. Well, we as surgeons made the statement that we could not identify a subset that did not benefit. Now, of course, if you're dealing with hazard ratios, you know that even if there's tiny incremental value and the hazard ratio is the same, the good risk patients are going to get very little absolute benefit. So we went ahead and utilized the tissues in our repository that had very good annotated data. And in B14, we showed that there was a very nice continuous variable. And of course, the categories are arbitrary. I mean, we drew the categories in. You're talking about the oncotype. The oncotype, the 18, the 30, and right. so on and so forth. But the mathematical algorithm is the continuous variable. So that there is a spectrum of patients who do very well and patients who don't do well at either end. And of course, when we applied that to B14, we saw that 50% did extremely well. 
that had a distant recurrence-free survival of over 90%. Now these were people who got tamoxifen. All tamoxifen treated. All ER, tamoxifen-treated. ER-positive, ER node-negative, tamoxifen-treated. But the icing on the cake really came in 2006 in the 2006 publication from B20 where we randomized patients, again, node negative, ER positive, to receive just tamoxifen, tamoxifen plus chemotherapy, CMF-based or M to F, which was Joe Bertino's regimen that he developed for head and neck cancer that we applied to breast cancer. And lo and behold, the 50% of low-risk patients showed absolutely no benefit from chemotherapy, 50%. That the only patients who showed a very brisk, over 25% absolute benefit from the chemotherapy was the third of the cohort that proved to be high risk. So we virtually had a Rosetta Stone to determine who would benefit from CMF-based chemotherapy. It's funny, when you said December 2003, I flashed on the fact that I was doing an interview with Dan Hayes at the beginning of the San Antonio meeting, and at the end of the interview, he goes, there's somebody I want you to talk to. <laughs> and of course, that was Soon Pei. Yes. And that was the time that I met Soon, he first told the story. And you know, there's a lot of skepticism about this the first couple of years. I think it was when the chemo stuff came out that all of a sudden people sort of paid attention to it. Yes, although from a mathematical standpoint, it's the icing on the cake. Right. Because the real algorithm, I think, was validated in the B14 data. The B20 data showed that it was predictive as well. So I think what we've seen, and you asked me to reflect... We have seen from the national databases that the overall usage of chemotherapy has decreased for the first time. That as the oncotype and other assays, but predominantly the oncotype, reached 60% of the population and over 60% of women who are node negative ER positive have an oncotype DX performed that as it reached the 60%, we saw an actual drop in chemotherapy, that the curves cross. So I think in the just over a decade since that consensus statement was promulgated, we have seen the whole approach to node-negative ER-positive breast cancer change dramatically. Of course, every cancer researcher is hoping that prevent cancer from you know, taking people's lives. But when you think about the thousands of women who would have gotten chemo based on the 2000 consensus conference that haven't gotten it over the last 10 years because of this one finding, it's pretty interesting. And of course, for the future, which I think leads us back to the other question, I think that to say this is the be-all and the end-all is to remain absolutely pedestrian that if we're still talking about the Oncotype DX in its current format, a decade from now, I think it would be most unfortunate. We see from genome-wide analysis that there are many, many genes that are involved in aromatase inhibitor non-responsive patients. I mean, the data from Matt Ellis and the circos plots that are very visually pleasing. I mean, you see all the lines 
in the middle of the circle for translocations or for fuse genes or whatnot or whatever. So next-gen sequencing and RNA-seq has identified over 100 genes that could be utilized to fine-tune the algorithm. And I think the algorithm will be fine-tuned. I think that's what's being worked on now, that there's nothing magic about 16 genes and five controls. You know, but when you look back globally, to me, one of the big things that came out of that was not just the technology of doing the assay, but more, how do you get supportive data? And the fact that, you know, this technique that you all did where you went back to prospective trials, got tissue samples, and, you know, tried to find data to figure out what was going on, maybe that was as important as the test itself. Oh, absolutely. I think some of the most important aspects of clinical trials, when your specific aims have long been forgotten, is having an annotated tissue repository. So you say, well, you know, 38, by the time 38 was reported, you know, people had forgotten the question. I think in that era, we were utilizing survival as an endpoint as opposed to disease-free survival and so on and so forth. But be that as it may, I think it gives us a very potent repository of tissue that hopefully will be able to identify the next algorithm. It's fascinating. Think about it. 5,000 patients there. Absolutely. Wow. Interesting. You know, one of the issues that has been very controversial about Oncotype is what I call the anatomy versus biology debate. And a lot of people get kind of nervous about Oncotype with larger node negative tumors. And there's a lot of controversy about node positive. There's a trial out there looking at that. But more globally, in terms of just identifying chemotherapy responsiveness, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think that you know, assays like the Oncotype are equally valid in the node-positive situation? If I had to guess, I would say that it has utility in the node-positive. And why do I say that? Well, you know, the responder trial, which I think is a courageous trial, I think they're randomizing 2,000 patients to no chemotherapy if they have an Oncotype of under 25 is and your node positive? one to three positive right, nodes, right. one to three positive nodes, to no chemotherapy or to chemotherapy. If you look at the way the continuous variables map, that the one to three continuous oncotype variable for one to three positive nodes up to 25 is not quite in parallel, but it's pretty close to the zero positive node cohort. So we did a study in B28, which was a large randomized prospective trial, as you recall, comparing AC to AC and paclitaxel. And we saw a significant small disease-free survival advantage by adding paclitaxel. But just as you pointed out, I think very appropriately before, we have annotated tissues in over a 1,000 that have successfully undergone Oncotype DX testing. And when you look at overall, if you look at the high, intermediate, and low-risk patients, the low-risk patients do very, very well. Now, they all got chemotherapy and concomitant tamoxifen, 
but they did very well. If you look at the one to three node cohort and you look at specific breast cancer mortality, at 10 years, 98% are alive without disease in the low-risk category. So it's certainly, and the p-value is highly statistically significant, of less than 0.001. So it certainly has enormous prognostic potential. And if it has enormous prognostic potential, I would surmise, and again, it's purely a guess, that they're not going to get the kind of benefit from chemotherapy that a high-risk patient might. We've been talking about Oncotype and other predictors. First of all, are there any others that look particularly promising to you? What I see a lack of is the kind of data that's behind Oncotype. You see a lot of assays. There's Mamiprint out there, but I don't see that depth of data supporting it. Do you see anything out there that... I agree. I think they're potentially compelling assays, but you're absolutely right. They don't have the depth of data, the reproducibility, the fact that they've been out there for as long as the Oncotype DX has been out there, and the fact that it has really been corroborated in many different settings. The PAM50, I think, is an interesting assay. It's going to be sold as a kit. It's going to be distributed to pathology labs when it receives FDA approval. It's manufactured by nanostring, and the machine is the encounter. People think that it's just the centroids of the intrinsic subtype, and of course, the risk of recurrence is not. There are additional 19 genes that are proliferative, and then they add the size of the tumor to enable the calculation of a risk of recurrence. And I don't think it has the broad scope and depth and breadth that I think I'd like to see because, you know, application to triple negatives, for example, to ER negative patients, I think would be something that we desperately need and want to see. So final question, as I was mentioning before, earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Pat Borgen. And actually, I was kind of surprised by one of the things he said. So I want to run it by you, which is the question of the ACASOG Z11 trial in terms of sentinel node dissection. Of course, you know, the data came out there in terms of do you need to do a node dissection in a patient with a positive node? And I'll just say that he was questioning the acceptance of that strategy that's occurred after the ACASOG study. I'm curious about your point of view. Well, I have a degree of discomfort over that. I mean, what is a positive node? In an era where we're doing MRIs and in an era where we're doing routine sonograms of the axilla, is that the population that was in Z11? We also know that Z11 was underpowered for its primary endpoint, and they utilized the surrogate endpoint of local regional recurrence. And is that definitive? It's not definitive, but are we ever going to do better? It's congruent with what we saw in BO4, which was also powered about 1,000 or 1,100 in BO4 and less in Z11. So are we ever going to do any better? If I have a patient that has a macro metastatic focus in a sentinel node, I will complete the axillary dissection. 
Z11 also had patients who had what we call micrometastasis. So I think it's underpowered to make a definitive conclusion. Do you think that there's a widespread application? I, that was my impression. The people saw that data and pretty much stopped doing axillary dissections in that situation. Yeah, and some of them have even stopped doing sonograms to say, hey, if I have a positive node, I'm just going to take out the positive node. And if it's two or one positive node, I'm going to do no more. Okay, really final question. The NSABP first presented data at San Antonio 2011 on a variant of the oncotype in DCIS, and the paper is about to be published. What do you see as the utility of this assay? I think that the oncotype DCIS does have utility. And the reason I say that is B17 was the definitive trial where we randomized patients with DCIS who had resection with no ink on tumor cells. That was the definition of NSABP's free margins, no ink on tumor cells. And they were randomized to radiotherapy or no radiotherapy. And at 12 years, the incidence of invasive ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence was 17 for the non-irradiated group and about 8% for the group that received ipsilateral breast radiotherapy. And we knew that not all patients, as a matter of fact, you can say if it's only 17% for invasive ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence because survival's the same, the majority of patients won't have an event. So you're treating everybody. Can we find a cohort where one doesn't have to utilize radiotherapy? And I think that the algorithm for the oncotype in DCIS was done in a prospective cohort that did not receive radiotherapy. I'm not sure that was explained in as clear a way that it might have been explained, but that in point of fact was the case. And there is a pretty good range from 3% IBTR to 25% IBTR, invasive. We're talking about invasive IBTR which are potentially life-threatening. So if you look at the low-risk category in the oncotype, it gives you an incidence of ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence similar to the group that did receive radiotherapy in B17. And when you factor in age, age stays in, in the multivariate analysis when you factor in oncotype, age still remains a statistically significant predictor of IBTR. The older one is, each progressive decade has a lower incidence of IBTR. So for women who are in their 60s and 70s with a favorable oncotype, I think you can make a pretty strong point in not utilizing radiotherapy in DCIS. And I agree with you, too, that it kind of has fallen off the radar, because I remember when I heard that it was going to be presented at San Antonio, I was like, finally, there's some kind of genomic thing going on in DCIS. Dr. Solon presented it, and, and then I started asking people, are you using it? And most people were like, no, or maybe didn't even hear about it. In what situations right now do you actually use this assay? I think in those situations where I want justification not to utilize radiotherapy. And that would be, and I have trepidation in women under 50, 
I think in those over 50, certainly 60 and so on, where I have a DCIS and want to avoid radiotherapy, I think the assay has utility. Are you thinking about or doing any other studies in DCIS to sort of pursue this? Well, not DCIS per se, but there's been a proposal to do it in, in small invasive breast cancers. Hmm. Because you can make the same argument there, although you're dealing with invasive disease. And in that situation, one has to ask, what do you accept as a delta that would give everyone a certain comfort zone to withhold radiotherapy? Because even in BO6, where we gave radiotherapy and did not give radiotherapy to those with breast preservation, their survivorship was not significantly different. We've already seen data in older women with small invasive tumors, the question of whether or not radiation therapy is going to contribute very much. I'm not sure how much that actually gets actualized You see, in if practice. we could, unfortunately, we've already done the trial, Neil, and that was B21 when we randomized 1,000 patients to tamoxifen versus placebo, asking if tamoxifen could replace radiotherapy. Now, these were small tumors. The answer was no, that radiotherapy still decreased the incidence of ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence, even in a tamoxifen-treated cohort. But you, have you thought about applying the archetype to that trial? Ah, excellent question. That would be the obvious thing to do, except we have unstained slides rather than blocks. Hmm. So if we could devise a technique to do an oncotype-like assessment in B21, I think that would go a long way. So let's close out talking about HER2-positive disease and where the NSEVP is heading in terms of neoadjuvant trials. In our data, B41, where we randomized between five and 600 patients to doxorubicin-based chemotherapy with lapatinib, with trastuzumab and the combination of the two, for the ER-negative subset, we are seeing consistently a 60 to 70% proportion of pathologic complete response. So you can look at the reciprocal question. What do you do with the patient who does not develop a pathologic complete response? So we're about to start a global trial to determine if those individuals who don't achieve a pathologic complete response, who are at high risk of recurrence, should we continue giving them trastuzumab or should we give them TDM1? So this trial is going to randomize approximately 1,500, a very manageable number, to either receive post-operative trastuzumab or TDM1, and that'll be the indication trial. And of course, TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate, has recently been approved in breast cancer. For the surgeons who aren't that familiar with it, maybe you can just talk briefly about what it is. Well, I think it's something that evokes the magic bullet of Ehrlich, which dates back to 1908. And it's a conjugate between trastuzumab and emtansine with a thioether link. So the trastuzumab and the cytotoxic agent are internalized. The cytotoxic agent is released only intracellularly. 
And certainly in the data that we have, I mean, Kim Blackwell's study showed that in those individuals who progressed while on HER2-targeted therapy, that TDM1 was superior to lipatinib and capecitabine. I heard about that idea. I thought it was really fascinating. I think the thing that's interesting about TDM1 is, as you say, you're delivering a cytotoxic, but these people don't have the usual sequela that we associate with chemotherapy. We were very interested in TDM1, and I'm not going to say I'm disappointed that it took this long, but on the other hand, I'm elated that it's approved, that it's effective, and that we now have the opportunity to use it in the adjuvant setting. And, you know, pertuzumab's no slacker either. That's been approved. That seems to give you an interesting bump. I mean, I wonder, actually thinking about this trial design, whether maybe you talked about a third arm with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Yeah, of course, that would be perfectly reasonable. But I think the point here is to determine the utility and propriety of TDM1. When you have a patient, I know there are a lot of factors that go into this, but generally speaking, what is the relapse rate of patients who have residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy in the HER2-positive setting? I'm sure it depends how much residual disease, but broadly speaking, what do you expect in terms of recurrence rates? We don't have the data from B41. The trials haven't gone on to the point where you can really get a very clear metric on that, but it is certainly much higher than those individuals who do get a PCR because those curves are separated, and the hazard ratio is approximately 0.3. Interesting. So 70% yeah. more. Yeah, that's really a fascinating thought in terms of this trial. When do you think it's actually going to get launched? The official opening date was February 28th, Hmm, interesting. So it's out there. I think it has to go through the hurdles. But I think it is imminent for patients to be able to randomize its NSABP B50. Hmm. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm putting my money on TDM1. Hope springs eternal, <laughs> Neil. And, you know, I desperately hope it works for the sake of our patients. And also the concept of trying to get answers earlier. I was actually talking to your colleague, Sandy Swain, the other day, who had presented the NSABP B38, the big chemo trial yes. looking at those stents. I remember when that was launched, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. Yes. And you know, by the time we got the result, we almost didn't care anymore. And I think this idea of trying to focus on the neoadjuvant and post-neoadjuvant setting, maybe you'll get us answers quicker. Right. And I think that's precisely the point, that I think there are two novel settings that are potentially available. One is an accelerated approval for pathologic complete response. And then there is the patient population that does not achieve a pathologic complete response.